This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Glad to have you here with me, as always. I'm very thrilled to be speaking to Rich Cohen today. He is a prolific, award-winning writer, a New York Times bestselling author of a multitude of books, including The Chicago Cubs, Story of a Curse, Tough Jews, Fathers, Sons, and Gangster Dreams, Monsters, Sweet and Low, and When I Stop Talking. And he's here with me now to talk about his most recent work called The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and the Birth of a Gangster Nation. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So from a very early age, you write, you have been fascinated with gangsters. Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, where not much was going on, or so it felt like not much was going on. My father's from a neighborhood in Brooklyn where a lot of the gangsters lived, and because he maybe didn't know a lot of bedtime stories or didn't know what to talk about to a kid, he told me a lot of stories about the gangsters from his neighborhood, and I became completely fascinated by those stories. And that's probably why I moved to New York as soon as I could, and when I became a writer, I started researching the gangster stories, and that's Tough Jews. It's about... Murder Incorporated, which was like a half-Jewish, half-Italian mob in Brownsville, Brooklyn. That's near where my father lived. And um, so it's always been mixed up with my father and his stories and where he came from. And I've been fascinated by it my whole life. So I've done quite a few episodes on New York gangsters, mostly late 19th century, early to mid-20th century. This is a story that's different from what I've done in the past. It's pretty fascinating. Most people I'd venture don't associate New York City crime with the 1850s. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I, I always say it's so long ago. You know, it's like, to me, it's like he's like the first gangster. He's like the Paul Bunyan of the New York underworld, this guy Albert Hicks. And it's so long ago that he wasn't even called a gangster because the, the word wasn't in wide circulation. They called him a pirate because it's right at that period where sort of you move from the water into the city itself as far as New York crimes. And this is like an era when you had river pirates, guys committing crimes on the river, and this was actually like a solo operator who worked as an ocean pirate all over the world but lived in New York. And um, to me, he's like the missing link between sort of John Gotti and, you know, Long John Silver. Yeah. This is not a, a period you normally associate with pirates in general. Um Many of the pirate names most familiar to people are from the 17th and 18th centuries. Yeah. What kind of piracy was going on in the 1840s, 1850s? Did the pirates from this, this era, did their activities differ from what we normally think of pirates doing? We think of pirates as sailing on a big ship together and their pirate crew and they sail under the black flag, 
skull and crossbones. They have a constitution. They split their they split their sort of take democratically. That's how I think of them anyway. Often in the West Indies, as far as Caribbean pirates, and um, this was a little different. The, the the definition of piracy, basically, and probably any definition of piracy, is that they were basically outside anybody's jurisdiction. They worked on the water, so it was a different set of laws. In New York, was a huge seaport. You know, the best natural seaport in a way, in the New World, in, in the United States anyway. And um, it had a ton of ships and a ton of wealth coming in and out of the city. And this is when there were you know, a lot of gangs in New York, Five Points and the slums and all that. And there, were, there was a, the fourth ward in New York was a waterfront ward uh, full of all these kind of places where sailors would get Shanghai, people get kidnapped, people get drugged, people get killed. And these youth gangs, some of them operated on the ships in the harbor. They would go out in boats at night, and they would rob ships, and um, they were pirates. They were called river pirates because they were on the East River and the Hudson River, which was called the North River. Albert Hicks, who I wrote about, was in that world, um, except he was a guy who got arrested for a petty crime when he was very young, was put in prison, in an adult prison, and um, was brutalized in that prison. And when he got out of prison, he swore he was going to take revenge on the world and he joined a whaling ship, and he saw the whole world, and he became an expert at mutiny, where he would get on a ship, and he would, when the ship, when things weren't going well with the ship, he would stir the crew, uh, the men before the mast, to mutiny, and basically overpower and kill the officers, take the money, take the ship, and take off. And he did this crime over and over again, and that's what made him a pirate. So. Although there was a period, weirdly, later on, in the middle of his criminal career where he actually was on a, a traditional pirate ship that was involved, like a lot of ships were involved in then, in transporting sort of um, illegal goods, including, I believe, slaves, probably, from Africa. And, um, you know, there's a real overlap between the pi those pirates and what we would consider gangsters. So one of the pirates I'd heard a lot about when I was a kid, was John Lafitte. I went to school in New Orleans. I was sort of fascinated by him. And if you really look at what John Lafitte was doing, he, what he was doing was very similar to what, uh, you know, Dutch Schultz was doing, I don't know, 50 years later, which was he was basically selling things that were illegal but that people wanted. In his case, it was slaves from Africa that he was auctioning in the bayou uh, off outside of New Orleans because the Atlantic slave trade had been banned. So we tend to think of pirates in one basket and gangsters in another, but there's a real overlap in the way they did business. Oh, that's so interesting. So you, you mentioned a number of things I want to ask you more about, but let's start with this. Um, much of the lore from this time and place comes from Herbert Asbury's book, Gangs of New York. And much of the activity in his book centers around the notorious Five Points. Right. Could you talk about Five Points a little? Where it was, what it was, what made it unique? Well, I always forget the names of the streets, although I, I know them, but they come together in, in lower Manhattan. Right now, the Five Points was a neighborhood that, um, that was, I think, I, it's like a five-pointed star where all these streets came together right downtown. And... Um, at the center, there was a little square called Paradise Square. And the story is, before that, there went, early on in Manhattan in the Dutch days, there had been a lake in the middle of, and if you live, I live not far from New York, and I lived in New York for a long time. The landscape's very familiar from Manhattan all the way up through New England. It's this kind of rolling landscape with very beautiful hills and very pristine lakes. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Lower Manhattan was basically leveled. You still see those hills in Upper Manhattan. Right down in the lower part of the city, there was a very beautiful lake called the Collect, which means lake in Dutch. And it served as the city's drinking water for the first 50 years or something. And a lot of industries, specifically tanneries, opened up using that water for their industry, and they basically polluted the lake and became an actual health issue. So at a certain point, they decided to drain the lake. And Canal Street in Manhattan was temporary canal originally built to drain the collect. And there was a big hill next to the collect, and they basically flattened the hill and took all the dirt from the hill and put it in where the lake used to be. 
and then they laid streets out on top of that lake. It was like landfill, but of a lake, and they didn't do a very good job of it. And basically, the buildings that were on what had been the collect, they started to sag, and they started to rot, and they started to fill with water whenever it rained, and the neighborhood was basically abandoned, and that neighborhood became this huge slum. And that's the five points, and it was sort of the most famous slum in America. Charles Dickens wrote about it. You can just look at it's like it, the descriptions of it are wild. It was this huge ethnic mix of all different kinds of people, all different ethnicities, and it was such a became such a dangerous neighborhood with gangs and everything that the police wouldn't even go in there. The period of time I'm writing about was the biggest crime wave in the history of New York, up including the 70s. I mean, per capita. And um, they didn't even count the murders in, in the five points because the police wouldn't go into the five points. And ultimately, the only solution for the five points is they bulldozed it. And uh, now what had been the center of the five points is Hogan Park. It's named for Frank Hogan, who was the DA of uh, Manhattan, who put all the gangsters I wrote about in my first book in prison, and it's surrounded by the courthouse. That was the solution to sort of surround it by legal buildings. But out of this neighborhood came all these gangs that we think of as the, the Herbert Asbury, the Martin Scorsese movie, which are not gangs like, you know, the mob, like the mafia, but they were big ethnic armies that were controlled by politicians of German gangs, specifically down there, Irish gangs. And um, that's really the five points. But right next to the five points was the fourth ward, which was a... Uh, waterfront neighborhood that also had been a very fancy neighborhood. It's where George Washington was inaugurated, all these mansions on Cherry Street. But as the Five Points became this huge slum, people wanted to move away from there, and they moved to the suburbs. And the suburbs was basically anything above 14th Street and 5th Avenue were like the suburbs. And those neighborhoods became slums, and those old mansions became bordellos, gambling houses, and it became this very crazy, strange, seedy place. And during the time that this story you've written takes place, the story of Albert Hicks and these murders, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, where was New York with immigration? The Irish had already arrived, right? But, but a lot of these Slavic immigrants had not yet started coming. No, it's, in- it's interesting because obviously now you have all these questions about immigration. And New York really was these periods of immigration waves. And whoever the immigrants were, were considered something less and like they can never be assimilated and they never be real Americans. And that's why the early gangs that are, that are Native Americans have names like the Native Americans. Because the Irish who'd come in in the 1840s, I think, uh, 1830s, 1840s, were seen as some, a group of people that can never really be Americans. And, um, huge waves to come in. It's interesting because, you know, you had the city that it was Dutch, and then the British came and took it over. So right from the beginning, it was Indian, then it was Dutch, then it was British. So the big immigrant groups were German and Irish, and then the groups you're talking about, Slavic, Polish, Jewish, Italian, they really came, and even that's when my own grandparents came to New York in the 1880s. That's when, that's when those groups came, and they came in great numbers, from the 1880s until, you know, like the 1910s, and there was law passed stopping them from coming. And it's interesting because, you know, they, the, when, when immigrants came to New York, they landed on Manhattan uh, in a place called Castle Garden where the immigrants were processed, and it became such large, large numbers that they built the welcoming center on Ellis Island, and next to it was an abandoned island called Bedloe's Island, where when the French made a gift of the Statue of Liberty, they eventually put the Statue of Liberty and renamed Liberty Island. Bedloe's Island is where Albert Hicks was hung publicly. And before Albert Hicks, other pirates, for many years it had been a place, and as had Ellis Island, where pirates were hung. And it's just a wild thing about America that we have this story we tell about ourselves, which, you know, I'm a believer in that story, but there's another story too. And right on on Liberty Island, you have both stories. You have sort of, you know, the Statue of Liberty up above and down below you have the, the death place of Albert Hicks. So let's get to Albert Hicks and his life. Could you tell us more about him, 
his early days, where he grew up, and when he first turned to a life of crime. Well, Albert Hicks is from Norwich, Connecticut. His father was a farmer. He had, I think, 11 siblings. His oldest brother had been a pretty notorious criminal named Simon Hicks, who had committed murder, stolen a lot of money, gone to Providence, Rhode Island. That was like the big city near them. And he was caught, tried, and sentenced to hang. And he, along with a lot of other people, escaped from prison. And he was never found again, never heard from again. So this was a period of time where you, there was a, you know, the United States ended sort of west of the Allegheny Mountains or something. I mean, you could disappear into the frontier, and that's what he did. And um, the other siblings in the family were law-abiding, good citizens, except for the youngest, which was Albert Hicks, who was just a kind of a, a, a I don't know, I guess you call him like a delinquent kind of kid. doesn't mean he was going to live this terrible life, but he would run away, he wouldn't work, he would do all these different things. And when he was like 15, like I mentioned earlier, he ran away to Providence. He went wandering around, he ran out of money, and he stole a bunch of luggage from a train station. And he sold some of the things he'd stolen to get enough money to go home. And somebody had seen him and recognized him. He was caught, and he was sentenced to prison, into an adult prison when he was 15, 16. And it was very brutal, and he escaped. And he was caught, and his sentence was doubled, and he escaped again. And after the second time, they locked him in solitary confinement for a year. This is when he was like 16 years old. And they wouldn't let him outside. And he said, he said later that he'd gone crazy, basically. And that's when he decided that he was going to get his revenge on the world, whatever that means. And after he got out of prison, he wandered around a little bit, but then very quickly he went out to the Long Island Sound and he signed on to the crew for a whaling ship. And very early on, he was involved in his first act of mutiny, which was piracy, where there was somebody on the ship that led this, and he joined in. And then he just made this a career, which is he would travel from place to place on different ships. He would commit crimes. He would mutiny, sometimes alone, sometimes with a partner. He would steal money. He would murder, and he would go to the next place. And it's amazing because later he gave a confession later in his life, and he went everywhere in the world. Following him, you go to, he, he, he talks about going to the Sandwich Islands, to Yahoo in the Sandwich Islands, which is Oahu in Hawaii. And he goes to Taipei, which is Tahiti. He goes to Baja, California, because that was a big whaling place. And he's at the Gold Rush in California. He's in New Orleans. He's in New York. He's in Rio de Janeiro. He's in Buenos Aires. He's everywhere in the world, and he goes on kind of this crime spree where he gets a lot of money and he loses a lot of money and he commits a lot of crimes that last 20 years when finally he gets unlucky and he gets caught, and he gets caught in a way that they're able to prove that he committed murder. When I think about maritime mutinies, the HMS Bounty comes to mind. Dozens of sailors, decent-sized ships, but, but some of these were just little sloops, right? a handful of crew members? Well, it's every kind of ship. So the, the the crime that did him in was an oyster sloop. And he was, it's like the classic movie thing where the guy's going to commit one more crime and that's always the one where you get caught. He was married by then. He was 40 years old and he had just had a kid and he needed money. And he was spent days on the docks searching for, you know, want ads basically for ships that he thought met a certain set of criteria. He wanted a ship that was small enough that he thought he could take on the entire crew himself. And that was, a sh that was an oyster sloop called the E.A. Johnson because it only had three crew and then four, including him. And he killed the three other people on the ship. And also oysters because oysters always had a deal in cash because it's a crop that can go bad very quickly. You had to pay in cash for oysters. And they had a lot of cash on hand. They were heading to Virginia and he basically took over the ship in the lower bay of New York. But there were other instances where he was involved on whaling ships were much, much bigger. And in that case, you'd have a mutiny more like the bounty, except the bounty, the bounty was more like they were just sick of the tyrannical officer and the captain. I mean, that was my sense of it from a long time ago. But, um, and they'd found their way to paradise and didn't want to go back, if I remember it correctly. But this was more like... Um, mercenary like they wanted to drink as much as they wanted they wanted the money and they wanted to do what they wanted and they basically wanted a party 
And there were times when they took over the ship early on, and then they gave the ship back to the officers because they couldn't sail it. So it was a whole mix of different crimes. And then, of course, he wasn't just on the water. At one point, they stole all this money off a ship uh, off of San Francisco, and they went down to Mexico, and they needed something to do with all this money, and he opened a hotel in a bowling alley in Mexico. It's just a really weird, strange... You never see Butch and Sundance running a bowling alley setting up the pins. I'll just say that. We will be right back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So could you describe Hicks? physically, how he dressed, to the best of your ability. I know that there aren't any photographs of him. Yeah. No, but it's interesting about him because I just wrote this thing for the New York Times saying he sort of established gangster style in New York, you know, and dress was very important to him. And one thing when they, because there, at the time, you know, people knew that there had been this horror, the way the crime broke in New York, the one I write about, is New York was a city all about sailors. And you wake up one morning and there's just a, an oyster sloop ghosting around New York Harbor, which was terrifying to people, you know. And they went out onto the ship and there was nobody on the ship. The ship had been abandoned, but they found blood everywhere. And they towed the ship into South Street Seaport in New York. And the detectives went onto the ship and they, just, they found, after searching it, four severed fingers and a thumb. And, that, and the dinghy was missing and that's all they knew. They didn't know anything about the guy. Uh, he'd gone under a fake name and called William Johnson. That's what he called himself. So th- this became a huge mystery and a huge newspaper story in New York, dominated the newspapers. And everybody pictured this kind of monster. 
And when they finally caught him and brought him back, the papers are writing about how upset people was that he was so handsome. And you realize his being very good-looking was probably what enabled him to get hired all the time. Because we know what the captain who hired him wrote about, how good-looking he was, how well put together. You know, just based on that, people trusted him. They didn't see him. He wasn't like a monster. He wasn't like some of the gangsters I wrote about in my first book, like Monk Eastman, who looked like, had smallpox scars and a messed-up face. He was a really good-looking guy. He was just around six feet tall, which was very tall for that time. He had dark eyes. And he wore, when he's identified, because they went around and they found people who saw him, He's identified by his clothing, which is he wore uh, like a peak, a very nice pea coat, which they call a monkey jacket, and a Kosuth hat, which was a name for a guy named Kosuth who'd been a Hungarian freedom fighter who'd done a bunch of rallies in New York, and he wore this very kind of fashionable flop rim hat, and that's what Hicks wore. And everybody identified him by the hat and the coat, by his silk shirts and by his boots. And at the end of his life, when he became very, very famous, after he'd been sentenced to die, but before they actually carried out the sentence, P.T. Barnum went to see him in prison and traded him $25 and two boxes of five-cent cigars for his clothes because his clothes had become so famous. He wanted to, after Hicks died, he wanted to have a display, and he wanted it to be wearing the actual clothes that Albert Hicks had worn. So weirdly, fashion and all that stuff's important, and then when he actually was executed publicly, he had a suit, a special suit made for his execution, which was an electric blue suit with anchors stitched in the sleeves. <laughs> Do those clothes still exist? Well, the, the, the suit that he, no, because the suit that he died in, he was buried in, okay? And he was buried basically like in a potter's field in Manhattan, which doesn't exist anymore. And within 24 hours, his grave had been robbed and his body was gone. And this was not an uncommon thing in New York because uh, they needed basically cadavers for students at what would become Columbia Medical School. And there was, there were always, people were always robbing these graves in these potter's fields and selling the bodies to students at the medical school. It's really ghoulish. So, and then the actual clothes that were on the... They also made a, a mask of Hicks's face. They made a wax figure. That museum, which was the famous museum, the American Museum, at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street, Hicks' figure, wax figure, was on display there for 10 years as the world's most wicked man, and 10 years to the day after he was hung. And he was hung on Friday the 13th of July, 1860, and some people believe that's where Friday the 13th got cursed. But 10 years to the day, which is July 13th, uh, 1870, which wasn't a Friday, I don't believe, but I mean, it wasn't a, uh, yeah, it wasn't a Friday, but Friday, uh, 1870, the museum, the American Museum burned down. And with it, you know, the, fig, the wax figure of Albert Hicks melted and the clothes burned. That's crazy. So you make some connections in, in how he dressed with how some of the early 20th century gangsters dressed. Yeah. I mean, it's more just this kind of almost theatrical aspect of the way they lived, you know, almost being a performer, you know, and having almost a public role. And and it's as a public, almost like a movie star, that Hicks became famous, and he became an anti-hero, and he became a pop hero in the slums, uh, the Five Points and the Fourth Ward. And it's interesting because you mentioned Herbert Asbury, now, you think, like, how is it that a guy who was really such an awful guy, it really crimes you can't justify in any way, how is it that this guy became a popular hero for immigrants because he was half Irish, half German? I mean, his, parent, his parents were. And um, when you go back and read Herbert Asbury, which is really the first way I heard about Hicks, because there's about two paragraphs or page or so on Hicks as one of the forefathers of the underworld, and he sort of jumps off the pages because he was, like I said, kind of a dashing figure. The story's different. The story that Albert Hicks, that, that Herbert Asbury told, and then was told by everybody that wrote about him that followed, is the story of a gangster who was so ferocious that he didn't have to belong to a gang, though he operated in the same neighborhoods where gangs like the Dead Rabbits operated. Everyone left him alone. 
Uh, some guys came off a ship looking for crew. They saw a guy drinking alone in a bar. They went and they slipped a Mickey into his drink, which would be largely opium. They knocked him unconscious. These hotels were crimp hotels, basically, on, on the water, built often on docks where guys would drink. And they had, in the bedrooms, they had trap doors that led right out to the river. And when the, they'd go into the room, they'd knock the guy unconscious who was already drugged. They'd throw him in a boat. They'd roll him out. They'd throw him into the hold of a ship. The ship would sail. The guy would wake up a day or two later. He'd be out to sea, and they would basically say, work or swim. And the store, and that was called the Shanghai, because in the worst case, you woke up on a ship bound for China, and you, didn't, you weren't home for a year, if you were lucky. So the story you read about Herbert Asbury was that Hicks was this very ferocious gangster who was Shanghai, woke up on the ship, was told to work or swim, became enraged, and killed everybody on the ship and took off. But when you go back and actually research it, and so... When you go back and research it, that's not what happened at all. What's happened is what I told you, which is he was looking for a certain kind of ship he could rob to get money and knew that the best, the best way to commit his crime was to kill everybody because he said, and I tried to figure out if he was the first one to say it, but he wasn't, but he made it very popular. He said, dead men tell no tales. That's what he said later in explaining himself. And um, at some point, Herbert Asbury's book was published in 1927, I think. Hicks committed these crimes in 1860 and remained famous for a long time. At some point, that story got reinvented, where Hicks went from just this brutal killer who was hunting to somebody who'd been a victim before he'd been a killer. And it's almost like that was necessary for him to become a popular hero. Do you think Asbury knew what he was writing was wrong, or, or had the story, the myth of Albert Hicks, by the time he had gotten to it, had, had it kind of mutated into something else? Well, that, I get into the book, like, I, get, I get into that question because it interests me too. Like, did Herbert Asbury make this story up? Did he change the story? I don't think so because Herbert Asbury was a good reporter but a great writer. And I, I do think that he was creating almost the mythology of the American underworld. But I do think that uh, probably what happened is, is that story over time, like you said, just mutated, became romanticized, was remade into something that could be told and somebody who could be a hero and like a game of telephone just slowly bit by bit the story got changed and Hicks became a hero instead of I mean an anti-hero but a hero still instead of just a flat out killer and you've seen the same things happens with people like Jesse James and stuff where the stories become more palatable it's almost like the subconscious of people working through the stories if that makes sense yeah, and it always seems like that the better looking, the better dressed they are, the more history wants to romanticize them. Exactly. It's like a, the Ted Bundy effect or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to bring up Ted Bundy, but... No, it's fine. <laughs> he, he came up in my last episode as well. <laughs> People let a lot of their safeguards down when they see somebody that looks a certain way, and, 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 it's, you know, and that's, Hicks had that going for him, and it confused... The press at the time, they wrote about it all the time, that he did not look like a monster. He did not look like you think he'd look, you know. And people just were open to him as this kind of urban figure because he looked so good. Yeah. So this ghost ship, so it sails in the lower bay. And as you've already said, when authorities boarded, they found some odd, rather gruesome evidence how did they ultimately connect this crime to Albert Hicks? Yeah, well, it was a miracle because one of the reasons why Albert Hicks was so cavalier in his crimes was back then, if you, didn't, if you weren't caught in the act, if there wasn't an eyewitness, if you got away and got into a crowd, there was almost no way to connect somebody to a crime because the detectives were new. They had hardly started working. Detectives then in New York worked on piecemeal, case-by-case basis. They were underpaid and easy to corrupt. And they advertise their services in the newspaper. If a detective was on your case, you could hire him, you know, as for your own private security, and he could lose a piece of evidence, you know. And um, so the fact that he was caught at all is like a miracle and really the beginning of modern detectives in New York. What happened is, is uh, they had the manifest of the ship. They knew it had four people. And they didn't have the bodies, okay, but they, Hicks had tried to sink the ship, and he believed he had sunk it. 
so it was full of little bits of evidence. And um, they, they first thing they did was they accounted for everybody on the ship, and the one person they couldn't account for was this guy, William Johnson, which was a fake name. So they figured that had to be the, the person who did this, the fourth person. And the dinghy was gone. So they, there was another new thing in New York called Harbor Patrol, which was almost like an early version of a New York shore patrol, coast guard, whatever. And they sent Harbor Patrol to search for this dinghy, which Harbor Patrol got lucky and found. Everything. If they hadn't found the dinghy, they never would have caught him. The dinghy was in the tall grass, pulled up onto the beach in Staten Island. And then they turned it over to the detectives that just went around knocking on doors, looking for people that had seen somebody come ashore. And a bunch of people had. They recognized him by his clothes. And because he was carrying this big bag, the bag held all the money. And he guy had got, walked basically two miles across Staten Island to the Staten Island Ferry. And he had missed the ferry. So the guy remembered him. Only a few people took the ferry then. Staten Island was like mostly farms. So they remembered this guy who was like a pirate out of a storybook. He'd gone into the bar next to the ferry, bought drinks for everybody, and flashed a lot of money. They got on the ferry. They interviewed everybody on the ferry. They found a, guy, a cabin boy who'd seen this guy, recognized him by his clothes. And he'd, the guy had asked him to help him count the money, which is crazy. And um, and then uh, on the landing on the Manhattan side, they found a guy who sold them coffee and cake, and they found a kid who helped them carry that bag up to the corner, up to up Greenwich Street, into what is now like the West Village. And then they lost the trail, and the story was all over the papers. And the next day, a guy came to the police station and said he was basically like the superintendent for a building in what is now the West Vill- Cedar Street, not quite the West Village, near Duc- Zuccotti Park. And he asked Hicks, yeah, he told the police that he thinks he knew who committed these crimes because he knew this guy that lived with him. The guy said he was going away on a ship for a month, and he came back three days later with a ton of money. And they went to his apartment, and in his apartment, they found a silver compass, the kind a sailor would have, that belonged to the captain of the ship that it had been left ghosting. And then they just continued to follow the trail all the way up to Rhode Island, which then Rhode Island was far away. You know, it was a whole day's trip away. And I can go through the whole thing, but it, it basically was just really great detective work. And as the a, as a prosecutor said later, we have to, it's like a chain, and you, if one part of the chain breaks, the whole thing falls apart. We have to connect them to every single part. And one of the things he did that was, stupid in his in his rush to get off the ship he went through the pockets of the crewmen and off one of them he took a daguerreotype of a girl and it turned out and they found it on him when they arrested him the daguerreotype turned out to be one of the crewmen's fiance and when they found her she had the matching daguerreotype of him they went together and what's more in back of her daguerreotype uh like in the frame there was a lock of his hair because she used to cut his hair and had kept a lock of his hair, and they found hair in the blood on the deck of the ship, and they now now they would just do a DNA test and match it. Then they literally had her look at both sets of hairs and say, "Do they match? And is this ha- is is this his hair?" And they passed it around the jury to make the match in the same way. So it was really an early version of forensic evidence. And I don't want to forget to mention the names of the, the murder victims. The captain was George Burr, and Oliver and Smith Watts were brothers. Half-brothers, yeah. Half-brothers. And those were the three men he killed on this ship. Right, and, they were, and George Burr was... Apparently, George Burr was small but very strong, and there was a big fight. And you can imagine, it's sort of an unbelievably grisly scene. The older brother... Oliver was bigger, and he had to deal with him first because he was the biggest challenge to him. And he got an axe off the wall of the ship, and he basically hit him in the head with this axe. And then the younger brother stuck his head out to see what happened, and he had come up a ladder from the cabin where the captain and the other brother were sleeping, and he hit him on the neck with this axe and basically decapitated him. And his body, without a head, back into down the ladder into the cabin, waking up the captain. So the cabin is woken by a a headless body falling through the hole down to the floor, 
and then he comes down with the axe, and the captain is shocked. He's been he's sleeping, and he but he immediately gets up, and they have this very long, violent, could have gone either way fight, and finally Hicks prevailed, and they were able to see an evidence of that fight and reconstruct it just by different places where the blade of the axe had hit, where blood was, where uh, things were broken. Like a very brutal, violent, probably five minutes. How did he dispose of the bodies? Well, it's it's interesting because he killed the bigger brother first, then the little brother, he basically decapitated him, then he went down and killed the captain, and then he threw, he came back up to basically he was completely exerted, I guess, exhausted, winded. I don't even know what word to use for the kind of tired and you are after you've just killed three people with your bare hands. But he came up on the deck of the ship and the brother stood up and wasn't dead, the first brother, and was coming at him and he was sort of shocked. It was like a ghost. And he grabbed him and he ran him off the ship and he threw him overboard. And the brother reached up and grabbed onto the railing with one hand and held himself. And he hit his hand with the axe. That's where the four fingers and the thumb came from. And, um, and, then, uh, and then he he left those fingers and a thumb. That was part of his undoing, too. The other one, the captain, he got a rope and he pulled his body up, threw him overboard, threw the, other, the smaller brother overboard, then had to find his head because he'd been decapitated, threw that overboard, then... Bo- then drilled holes or burned holes in the side of the ship to sink it and then took off with the money. And we know what he did because he confessed it later, right? We had an early sketchy version of what he did based on forensic evidence, which was then confirmed and corrected and changed by him in his interviews with the police and then in his big confession. And his big confession happened of course, as they always do, once he'd been found guilty. He'd been, and it was very quick. He was told, you know, you're going to be hung by the neck till dead. And, and, and they set the day, so it was like three weeks away. And he'd always thought he was going to get out of it, and then he broke down. And he made a very, it was very, um, they sent a priest to see him whose expertise was people on death row. And he was very uh, mercenary about it. I don't know if that's the right word, but... He basically asked the priest, he said he believed he'd made a deal with the devil, and the devil protected him, and he felt the devil had abandoned him in his hour. He wanted to know if it was too late to switch sides. If he switched and accepted Jesus, could he still go to heaven, even though he'd done with all that he'd done? And the priest said yes, but he had to truly accept that it, could, it had to be real, and he had to confess what he had done, honestly. Not just this crime, but all the crimes. And that was why he did the confession. Also, he, was, he did the confession uh, with the understanding that it would be written and published, and the money, there would be money paid for the confession that would go to his widow and his child who would be, an or- who would be fatherless. Back after a few brief messages. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. 
But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. This guy was obviously a ruthless, soulless, vile murderer, but, but he did have this tender spot for his wife and child. It's like all these criminals that you, I mean, the other book about the gangsters too, I mean, the later gangsters, Murder, Inc., I mean, they were very violent, vile people too, and they were able to compartmentalize and sort of see the people who were fully human to them, which was their family and everybody else whose humanity they did not recognize. You know, and that's how they were able to do what they did. So the, the, the trial it was pretty much a, an open and shut case. But were there any parts of, of the, the, the trial, any courtroom drama, testimony that you found especially interesting? I thought the whole thing was pretty interesting, just also for its depiction of that life at that time. I mean, they bring up his all the, the family of all the crew, and they bring up all the people that knew him. And there really was a, one really wild moment where everyone identified him by this coat, and they, they, the, the prosecutor asked him to try on the coat, and it's just, it's O.J. Simpson in the glove, 100%. You know? <laughs> and the, uh, the judge says to him, you don't have to try it on. But he wants to try it on, weirdly. And when he puts it on, the guy on the witness stand goes, yep, that's the boy. And that causes everybody in the courtroom to laugh. There were weird bits of humor in the courtroom. Also, the federal marshal who took him to and from court and was with him right up to his death was this guy, Isaiah Rinders, who was a super colorful figure who'd been a, a riverboat captain and then been kind of a card sharp on riverboat ships and been in knife fights. And he came to New York, and he was in the Five Points, and he owned a whole bunch of groggeries, which were like grocery stores in the front and liquor stores in the back. He was really one of the leaders of the Five Points uh, gangs of the Dead Rabbits. He was denounced by Theodore Roosevelt. And um, he was said to have basically won the election in New York for James Buchanan, who made him a federal marshal. And you just have this image of these courtrooms where it's Rinders and Hicks together, and they're telling jokes, and all the reporters are standing around laughing. Like it's, you know, funniest thing in the world. Now, you got to understand, Hicks still believed he was somehow going to get either escape because I think because his brother had escaped or he was going, it wasn't going to hold up because nothing ever held up because there never was any evidence. But the key here was, so the story was, you couldn't convict somebody of murder without a body, and there were no bodies. I kind of left this out. So at the worst, he was going to be convicted for robbery because they found this stuff on him, and his lawyer was saying that he bought the stuff in a second-hand store. Somebody else did the robberies, and he just bought the stuff. And... Um, so what they did was, this was interesting too to me, they, uh, they decided they would try him for piracy. And the definition of piracy is any crime committed on the high seas was piracy. And for piracy, this, the sentence was capital punishment. So you could kill him without finding him guilty of murder. And uh, his, his lawyer said, well, but it's, the law says any crime on the high seas but he was within the jurisdiction of New York because it happened in the lower bay of New York where there's the Harbor Patrol and there's the New York police. This shouldn't be in a federal court. This should be in a New York court. And the judge sort of agreed and said that was a real good argument, but I don't really care. I'm trying as a pirate anyway. This was pretty big news in New York at the time, right? Yeah, there were like 35 papers in New York. It was front-page news in every paper morning and afternoon edition for three months. It was the biggest story in New York, one of the biggest stories of the year. And Hicks remained famous for a long time. I think one of the, thing, one of the reasons why people don't know this story better 
uh, is because this happened summer before the Civil War. And it was like, to me, it's like this, once you, the Civil War just changed everything. It was like a different America after the Civil War. Everything from before the war was sealed off in amber. It was, it was antebellum. You know, it was a different world. But even so, there was a twilight zone from the early 60s about a guy that owns a wax museum and the museum is being closed and the figures in the wax museum come to life and start killing people rather than be sort of melted down. And one of them is Jack the Ripper and one of them is Albert Hicks, dressed very accurately. So in the early 60s, some people clearly still thought that people would know who Albert Hicks was. Also, there's a very there's a Meyer Berger profile in the New Yorker from I think the 50s. Meyer Berger was a famous you know chronicler of New York, and uh, he wrote a story about the hangman, the old hangman of the tombs, and he'd interviewed him. I think he wasn't still alive, or maybe I can't remember exactly the setup. But you can go look it up. But he maybe and anyway, he asked somebody spoke to this guy many years later and said, "What's the greatest?" execution you've ever done, and he said, Hicks the pirate. Wow. The jury uh, deliberations for the Hicks trial, they were really short, right? <laughs> yeah. It was like I, it was like seven minutes. It reminds me of the movie The Producers, Albert Melbrook's movie, when they asked how the jury finds, and the jury says, we find the defendant incredibly guilty. <laughs> it was a very emotional case. It was traumatic for the city. Because it was these almost all-American sailors. And uh, one of the lines that did stick with me from the trial is just the fact that Hicks had the daguerreotype of the guy's fiance was itself proof that something violent had happened. And the prosecutor said, you know, we haven't yet gotten to a day where Yankee sailor boys allow people to just take pictures of their fiancés without fighting. So you said that between the time of the verdict and the time of the execution went by really fast, right? Just a couple of weeks? I think it was like three weeks. And even when I wrote about Tough Jews, all those guys were ex put in the electric chair and sing sing. That was like three months. I mean, now we're up to where it's like 30 years. But that was much closer. You know, that's how they did it. And it was much closer to kind of frontier justice where... This guy did this, and then he hangs, and it was important that he hang within sight of the sea where his crimes were committed, and he was hung on Bedloe's Island from where he could see pretty much every place he'd been and done bad things on that crime spree. So Hicks, as you said, assumed that he'd have a chance to escape and didn't seem so concerned, but this was such a big case, a big deal, um, so big that he, he would be surrounded by people. <laughs> from the point of his conviction up to the point of his execution, and he never really had a chance. No. No, and they put him in the tombs, and they had him heavily guarded, and somebody was watching him all the time. And he became a celebrity. And they were just, there was no way that he was going to get away with this. And he just had this, you're right, he had this idea. He committed a lot of his crimes uh, in Hawaii, in Tahiti, in these different places, in... San Francisco before, you know, during the gold rush. This was now New York City just about to become the modern metropolis, approaching, you know, a million inhabitants, a completely different kettle of fish. What was the scenario by which he confessed to all of these additional murders? He sold his story to a newspaper, I, I think you said. Yeah, and he gave his confession actually to one of the assistant marshals. So he didn't actually give the confession to a newspaper. He gave it to an assistant marshal. Uh, they brought a, no, they brought a guy in who the assistant marshal oversaw it, and they brought like a transcriber in, and he gave the confession in his cell. It took several hours to this person, who then gave it to a publisher, uh, like a quickie publisher, and then they wrote it up, and it was published the day, the morning of his execution. It was published. It was on the street to buy, and. The, in the headline of that book and the articles that follow it, they said he confessed to more than 100 murders. He never put a m number on it. When they asked him how many people he had killed, he said he couldn't remember. But they were listening to his story and doing the math, and somehow they came up with more than 100 murders. Is he considered a serial killer? You know, people have said that. I guess you 
could I don't I don't think you consider him a serial killer because I'm not an expert on serial killers, but it seems like serial killers their motive, their object is to kill people. You know? His object was to rob. And he killed people so he wouldn't be caught. So he was mostly stealing money and then drinking and gambling. And he killed people who resisted and he killed people who he thought could tell on him. You know? So I think that's different than a serial killer, but a criminologist could probably come in and tell you, tell me I'm wrong. I just think of a serial killer as somebody who's a murderer just for its own. That's the point of it. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Right. And he had no M.O., he had no characteristic. I mean, he had, an, he had an M.O. for the crime he committed, but there were other instances where he didn't kill anybody. For whatever reason, he didn't think that he was in danger of being told on and caught. And there, was, there was times there was a ship in California uh, off of Mexico where there really was no law. They took all the officers, they tied them up, put them on a dinghy, and sent them adrift. They didn't kill them. Hmm. So the execution was pretty straightforward. You mentioned it, it took place on... Bedloe's Island, which is now Liberty Island. Well, what's wild about it was they'd stopped doing public executions in New York because public executions were done almost by way of a lesson to the, to the people, like this is what happens, and it was supposed to scare them, and especially keep the people in the slums from committing crimes and keep them on the straight and narrow. But what happened with previous public executions, hangings, always hangings, in Manhattan was they became huge parties. People came out like a spectator sport. They got drunk. They rioted. And it had the opposite of the intended effect. So they'd stop doing them. Became, they became these very vulgar, gruesome, upsetting spectacles. The federal government continued to do them for a while, and Hicks was the last one. There hadn't been one in a long time. His was the last one, and it was, they did it on Bedloe's Island, which is a little island. It's like eight acres or something. You can, it's right across from lower Manhattan. And uh, they, they went out, the, Isaiah Rinders went out the day before and set up the gallows. And he sold tickets to the hanging and gave a lot to reporters. And ultimately, they say 20,000 people watched him be hung. Uh, 8,000 of them on the island, 12,000 of them in ships, yachts, pleasure craft, crowding the harbor, making a big party of it. Hicks was taken there on a, on a steamship that had been, uh, engaged for the occasion, and he sold tickets, renders to the ship, and everyone on the ship was drunk. And they had to bring a battery of basically Marines out from Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn, to just clear a path to the gallows. And um, so it was a, and if you can go back and look at the old headlines, it was just a huge, crazy spectacle. And the ship, the ghost ship, had, there was two owners of the ghost ship. One was, the captain was half owner, and the other half owner was the guy who had been ice up Long Island like a businessman, he had taken the ship back, he'd had it fixed up, and the ship, they had the ship anchored right at the foot of where the gallows was, so it was the last thing Hicks saw. Isn't it strange how some stories build in the public's imaginations over time? They, they get embraced and then embellished, and then some like this one, just as incredible as any other story out there, just kind of petered out. Besides the Twilight Zone episode you mentioned from the 1960s, this isn't a story that is really talked about now, at least not in general true crime conversation. Well, because it's confusing, because he's, he's, once you have the sort of idea of the gangster, which you start really having with movies, you know, in the 20s, 30s, movies like The Roaring Twenties or, you know, Little Caesar all the way up to The Godfather and Goodfellas. You have this idea of the New York gangster. And then you have the idea of the pirate, which is a completely different genre, you know? And Hicks is between genres. That's why I call him the missing link. So he doesn't quite fit. That's what makes him interesting to me, that he is the guy, he is the one who crosses over, goes from the sea to the land, you know? So you can see echoes of the older pirates, and you can see what the gangster would become in New York in this one guy. But it also is one of the reasons, I think, that the world moved on. And then, of course, he was pre-Civil War, which is a whole different category. There's no photographs of him. There's some 
drawings of him. There is one photograph people say that is of his hanging, but I don't think it is because it shows buildings that weren't on Bedloe's Island. So it requires a lot of reading and a lot of imagination to just picture what he looked like and what New York was like then because New York is the same, but it's completely, completely different. And a lot of the places where Hicks did things literally aren't there anymore. They are, um, I mean, they're there, but they're underneath the East River Drive or they're, you know, they're covered up. You can't get to them. The waterfront itself has changed because they they built out uh, Lower Manhattan with a lot of landfill. I lived at the corner. I don't know if you know New York very well if you're in New York, but I lived at the corner of 11th Street and Washington Street, which is basically a block and a half from the river. In the time of Hicks, that corner was still there. It was the waterfront. That's where the island ended. You know, so it's the same city, but it's a different city, and it's sometimes hard to picture. Has anyone approached you about making a movie out of your book? Yeah, actually, I'm talking to a guy who's a friend of mine. He's a movie producer, a kid I grew up with, who I always wanted to do something with him, and we're going to try to do something. Yeah, period dramas can be pretty tricky and expensive to make. Well, this is the kind of story where I think you can go to, there's some, you can't, New York is so different, but there's cities from that era that haven't changed very much, you know, and you could go film it in parts of Newport, Rhode Island, certain streets that looked like New York did then. So I did want to ask you, I think my listeners would also like your book, Tough Jews. Well, this is kind of like a a bookend of that, I would say. They're definitely connected. Would you mind summarizing the book? What is it about? That book is about Murder Incorporated, Jewish mob, uh, Brownsville, Brooklyn. So I don't know if you know that story very much, but basically when, the, when you know, at the time right after Hicks, the gangs in New York were like the Herbert Asbury. There were these big ethnic street gangs, and things changed over time, and they became a, important for politics. And Arnold Rothstein, who was kind of a rich kid from the Upper East Side, became, because he was a gambler, and he hung out downtown, became friendly with a bunch of gangsters, and he saw their world. And he said, you are all working for the politicians, but the politicians should be working for you. And he had the idea that the underworld could be reorganized along the lines of the Ford Motor Company, is how he put it. And basically, there was, there was so much money, blood, opportunity, and lives lost in these big gang wars and tribal gang wars, they should all work together and they should set up a system uh, whereby he didn't have this all spelled out, but it, it became this where when one gangster had a problem with another gangster, he would go to kind of an underworld court. He would make his case, and then the court, in, it, like without a motion, would make a decision about who was right, who was wrong, and what to do, and the gangs could divide up the territories. Ultimately, this became, you know, the five families in New York, which were like five principalities, five leaderships, and you would belong to each family the way you'd belong to like a trade union. And once this was all set up, later on, during Prohibition, when there was real money at stake, they realized that if they were going to do this, they needed an enforcement wing because you couldn't have one gang going killing another because of what the court said because you'd set off a gang war. And there was a very tough gang uh, that was half Jewish, half Italian, which were the still the, you know, the big immigrant groups at the time, like we were talking about. They were still in the slums then. And that was good that they were mixed, ethnically mixed, because it prevented this idea of kind of a, a war by identity. And they made them the enforcement wing. And the newspapers named them Murder Incorporated, though that's not what they called themselves, because they would commit seemingly motiveless crimes because, you know, it was organized internationally. So if somebody had a problem with somebody in Chicago, these guys would come from Brooklyn, do this killing and then go back to New York, so there was no motive. And the person who did have a motive was made sure that they had, were out in public and had an alibi. And they never would have been caught, I don't think, except one of their leaders was tricked by the police, believed that they knew what they were doing, made a deal for himself, and basically ratted everybody out, and that was Abe Kid Twist Rellis. And that gang had Rellis as a leader, and uh, above Rellis was Louis Lepke Buckalter, the only gang boss, one of the guys on the board that, you know, made the decisions, 
the only gang leader in the history of America to actually be executed. He died in the electric chair. His underboss was Albert Anastasia, whose nickname was the Lord High Executioner. He wound up taking over that whole operation when Lepke died. And then later on, Anastasia was killed. Famously, famous photograph of him, he was shot while he was getting his hair cut in a barber chair in the Park Central Hotel in Manhattan. Ironically, the same hotel where Arnold Rothstein, the guy who set the whole thing up, was shot 30 years before. And Anastasia was shot by uh, Joe Gallo, crazy Joe Gallo. So it almost comes right up to the present. And um, but when you went, when I went back and researched that book and looked for who came before them, you get to like guys like Monk Eastman, who who ran a gang called the Eastmans, and you go who came before them, and very quickly you get back to Albert Hicks. You, you can see the the lineage, the, the criminal lineage in New York City. Right. That's why I saw this book. As, it's not really a prequel, but it's sort of like this is the pre prehistory of what became the New York underworld that we all know. Yeah, interesting. So your website is authorrichcohen.com. Right. It used to be richcohen.com, but then somebody somehow got it and wanted me to buy it back, so I just added author. I don't know. It's just a whole, it, wasn't, it could have been asking $1, and I would have done it because it was so... Uh, rude. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Sounds like extortion. <laughs> yeah, it's silly. But anyone who wants to learn about you and your books, they're all listed there. Yeah, it's authorrichcohen.com. And this book is available wherever books are sold. Uh, well, this book's just out, so yes. And same with all of them. You can get all of them all around. Yeah, it was a great book. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Well, uh, thanks again for your time. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, really fun. Great conversation. Thanks for calling me. Again, I've been speaking to Rich Cohen about his book called The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and the Birth of a Gangster Nation. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.